Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Samaj McDowell, the host of the Geopolitical Pivot, and today is a very interesting conversation as we kind of pivot towards the Middle East once again. Uh, but more in particular, we're talking about the current status of the Arab Republic of Syria. Um, over the past week, we've heard news about the the approved bombings um, in Syria, primarily against uh, Iran by uh, President Biden. Um, however, this has been an ongoing situation since at least 2014, as far as our actual direct involvement. Um, however, Syria has always been a strategic position uh, when it comes to Middle Eastern uh, stability as well as politics, and going back to at least Hafez al-Assad, the father of the current dictator Bashar al-Assad in 1970. Um, but today I'm not going to be really talking about this topic by myself. I'm going to have a good friend of mine, uh, Mr. Lance Moore, who's with me. Um, Moore, how are you doing this fine Saturday? Not bad, not bad. Looking forward to getting into the into the weeds for this conversation. It's going to be great. Yes, you know, it's all about the weeds, whether it's whacking them or just letting them grow. Um, so no, this is a very interesting topic, um, especially in regards to Syria. When you think of the Middle East, um, primarily you usually think about the rivalries between Saudi Arabia and Iran, or Iran and Israel. Um, but you know, a lot of people don't really know that you know in the seventies and the eighties and the early nineties, Syria was really a regional power player, especially when it came to Lebanon. Uh, when Lebanon had the second civil war, you know, you didn't really talk about Iran really until Hezbollah came in. You really talked about Syria. It was a showdown between Syria and Israel. Um, but before we kind of get into that, how about you let us know a little bit about yourself, your educational background, and your your professional background where you are now? Yeah, um, thanks for having me. Uh, really excited to be here and have this conversation. Um, so I am currently a uh, national security analyst um, at Thompson Reuters Special Services. Um, basically, I you know, get assigned to different projects and provide uh, in, uh, intelligence support, law enforcement support, sometimes policy support um, in terms of, uh, you know, intellectual property, uh, you know, with the whole China-U.S. dynamic that's increasingly becoming a big part of uh, definitely in the previous administration and, and going to be a, a quintessential part in this current administration. Um, so I've been involved in uh, different private sector uh, jobs within the IC for the last four to five years, and uh, before that, um, I actually came to D.C. about seven years ago to become a journalist, and I actually worked uh, covering defense and energy policy at the tail end of the Obama administration. Um, turned out I didn't want to be a journalist, but uh, found my niche in national security and foreign policy work actually by sitting in on some of the uh, Senate um, uh, Armed Services Committee hearings on the, un on the unclassed ones and, and kind of engaging there. And then also um, when I came across uh, where, uh, where we both are, uh, students from uh, from IWP. I, I, I did, would never really thought about going to grad school um, until I went there, and, and I loved the idea of a specialized education. I knew that I wanted to have a career in the national security apparatus and intel, depending on where um, I could find opportunities. So let's. So I kind of my I got I just two years ago I graduated from IWP with a degree in statecraft and national security affairs with an intel focus, mm -hmm. um, and my undergraduate degree, like I said, is in communications and media studies and journalism, and so. Um, which kind of helps because it, you know I have this research mind, you know, objective, uh, truth-seeking 
a veracity inside of me that I just can't really can't help myself or I just want to <laughs> consume as much information as possible so that right. I'm informed not only as a voter but just as a citizen mm-hmm. um, in trying to understand you know the complex dynamics of what's going on with you know the US and our relationship with the rest of the world so um, yeah it's kind of where I'm at now and uh, um, I'm you know happy to be part of this, this discussion. Yeah, it's a very much needed discussion. Um, you know, when we were talking about before we started this um, this episode, talking about the notions of like these endless wars, we we're really hesitant to get into Syria, but now we're in Syria in some type of degree. Whether that's you're not necessarily boots on the ground, although we do have a few hundred in, in Syria. It's more so drone and and uh, an airstrike uh, precision operations, but nonetheless, we're still in Syria. Um, you know, we're kind of approaching the 20 year mark being in Afghanistan and you're just like I was four when we when we first entered Afghanistan and here I am 20 years later 24 where we're still there still trying to figure out how we're going to leave in Afghanistan but I think in my personal opinion Syria is much more complex um, going even back to the the Syrian mandate um, when it was under France, uh, French uh, influence, where you know that's how the Alawites, uh, when Hafez al-Assad was able to achieve power um, in 1970. So, kind of where we are right now, if you can, um, let us really start the discussion with. We're going to go case by case with the different sovereign countries. So we're going to start with Turkey, and when we talk with Turkey, we also have to talk about the Kurds. Um, in, in northern Syria, and you can't talk about Syria without talking about the Kurds, YPG. Um, so, from your um, research and um, kind of familiarity, how does Turkey play in this whole dilemma with Syria? Um, so, with Syria, it's so multidimensional, and every there's so many different players with so many different interests. That's going on. Turkey's been an interesting. Uh, development, especially um, kind of towards the tail end of this, of the last administration. Um, so basically, from if you if you you know if you track news about Erdogan and their interests, um, they one of their policy interests is that they've wanted to establish a safe zone mm-hmm. in northeast Syria um, because they've been dealing um, with their own uh, separatist movement, Kurdish separatist movement in, in in the southeast region, and their war and their main worry. Um, even though they're saying that they're there to support, you know, our, our U.S. coalition forces and and uh, you know our involvement with the, with the Gulf states and with Israel and, and everything else, but what I, I personally think that they're there for is to they're worried about the separatists um, in southeast Turkey, the PKK, um, once uh, uh, having a relationship, but also developing a working a strong working relationship with the with the SDF forces who are kind of a mix of you know the Kurdish militias militias and uh, some of the Syrian you know Syrian non-Kurdish militias that have joined forces that they you know they're I mean quite frankly they were one of the, the strongest counterinsurgent fighting forces that pushed really pushed back ISIS mm-hmm. um, in that area and really you know led to their kind of crumbling and downfall at least as, as it stands um, where my concern is is now, and I think that was I think that was one of the main motivations for their for their invasion. And I think we, uh, you know, in the last administration, we made a mistake by kind of just uh, stepping back and letting them proceed with that invasion for a number of reasons. But one, we left the Kurds kind of high and dry, and they've been one of our. I mean, we've done that on a number of occasions, and there's a lot of worry there yeah. um, for that. You know, how long they're going to put up with us? <laughs> but um, 
also, I mean, speaking of ISIS, they were also operating some of the prison, the military prisons um, that they housed over 10,000 captured ISIS fighters and that have now, once they rolled in um, with Russian support, um, though the Kurds just, you know, just uh, up and left town uh, and, and were probably frustrated. And now a lot of those, a lot of those ISIS fighters escaped. And I feel like after having, you know, a, a quite a big accomplishment, pushing them back and really, you know, systematically uh, taking them down, they're at, they're in an opportunity where they're angrier and they're ready to, to, to you know, to, to reunite again, to really make another push in the region, um, which, you know, back when in 2011, you know, when the, when the protests started happening during Arab Spring, where this whole civil war in Syria began, and then, you know, and, and uh, some of the, the protesters created militia groups that, you know, attracted jihadists from around the world that mm-hmm. eventually became an offshoot that, where, you know, that created ISIS. Um, with the Turks, I think they may have overstepped their boundaries in, in the sense that they, I understand what their interest in this whole thing and, and trying to make sure that the Kurdish separatists don't um, achieve their ultimate goal, which is creating an autonomous zone, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, and that's just not that's not just Turkey, that's Syria, Iraq, and, and, and Iran, where there's right. this heavy... Uh, little pockets of it, and you know, I mean, we can go back to World War One. Is the fact that you know we could have, we could have bypassed this whole mess if if uh, Kurdis, Kurdistan had been you know the Western powers had had uh, kept their promise and and give the Kurds uh, right. their own autonomous zone. But I think since Turkey is they have the largest conglomeration of of, uh, of Turks or of of Kurdish of Kurdish separatists in that region, um, I think they were trying to make a play. To not only expand, the Turks are making a play to expand their boundaries, but also really put a thumb on the Kurdish populations there in in in, in the southeast Turkish uh, Turkey area, but also in north the, the the Kurds in in Syria, which is uh, a bit alarming. And you know, kind of like the Russians, where they're saying that they're you know they're 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 on our they're helping us out with you know with combating with combating you know counterterrorism threats like ISIS and other uh, jihadist groups but i think there it's a much more complicated scenario than that that they're really pushing their own interests right. as well and i'm interested to see um, what is going to be the different approach if any um, for the new administration in 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 addressing kind of a, a little bit of an icy relationship we have with our nato ally right. in turkey and seeing um, you know if that's going to change and if you know it's obviously with erdogan becoming uh, increasingly um, uh, called out by by the international um, by international partners for their human rights abuses and also their horrible mistreatment of the Kurds, at least in the eyes of the rest of the world and, and most of the rest of the world and, and a lot of the other states in the region. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm curious to see you know where we go from there and, and how we can react in a way that ensures um, you know that we don't we don't alienate ourselves from our relationship with the Turks, but also. Um, you know, don't abandon our friends that have really been fighting our battles for us for this for the the entirety of this of this uh, forever of these forever wars, and they've been right alongside us. And I think, I think it's a it's a very problematic dynamic that's going on here. So, yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. It's so interesting though because there's one particular uh, there's one particular country um, that has come up in favor to an extent to the establishment of an actual Kurdistan, um, and that's Israel, strategically speaking. Uh, why not? You know, you'll be able to literally take the land from some of your more rather adversarial or or near adversarial power. You'll be able to take a lot of strategic lands from Syria, from Turkey, from Iraq, from Iran. So, you know, from a strategic land, uh, standpoint, why wouldn't you want you know to support 
a full-on Kurdish state, and if that means taking land from um, your historical, in a way, um, regional adversaries. Um, I think also when we were talking about Turkey, um, well, you also can't not talk about you know the positionings of of Russia with their uh, you know providing of the S four hundreds. Uh, service their missile defense systems and their Turkey's main defense is oh well Greece has S three hundreds. We don't talk about Greece and their usage of the S three hundreds. Why why is it now a problem for Turkey to have S four hundreds? But um it's in my opinion, it comes down to also why Idlib utilizes the Turkish lira for business transactions. Like that's that's more that's dem that demonstrates more than just wanting a security buffer. Because at first they were saying, we just want a security buffer to be able to then allow the Kurds to go back to their homelands in northern Syria. Well, if that's the case, why then push for Idlib to use your currency for business transactions? If we know history, usually a lot of times, aggressive desires to expand your, your, your borders tends to be based off of economic interest. If I can get it, the Idlib province to become dependent on my currency, then that gives me substantially more leeway than Bashar al-Assad's regime in, in Damascus. You know, um, But even now we're talking about the Idlib province where it's basically a free-for-all amongst all the remaining uh, proxies. Is that, is the Idlib province, I guess, under a Turkish influence per se, if they're utilizing the lira as well as Turkey's proxy, by proxies being the largest in the region, what what type of implications could that spell out? If you know Bashar al-Assad can't get Idlib under control, United States can't get Idlib under control, Russia is hesitant to provide more resources to Idlib, and the largest proxy in Idlib is backed by Turkey. So kind of like what's what what's that implica what could that implication be if Turkey really wanted to push you know into Syria permanently they could but, you know yeah I mean I mean it, you make a good point because I think well I mean what we're talking about here is, is spheres of influence right and I think especially with Intelib and and the reluctance and hesitancy or just kind of a, a, you know, a lack of movement from some of the other players. I think Turkey has a, a, an opportunity here, and, and I think that's what they're capitalizing on, just mm -hmm. because I think not only can they, they can address an old issue um, with, with going after the Kurds in an aggressive way in the area, but then also pushing in and expanding their economic interests um, to become, I mean, everyone's, everyone's always talking about the U.S. and, and the Russians um, kind of going going toe-to-toe -to, -toe to kind of have the, you know, the biggest biggest reach and the biggest sphere of influence but turkey especially under erdogan and, and you know he's how they've taken more of an authoritarian um uh, uh, turn um i think for them i i 100 believe that erdogan is fully aware that in doing this and and also having very little to no blowback from the other players mm -hmm. in this conflict that he can just roll in there and and uh, and i don't i mean unless unless there's some drastic changes made i don't think anyone's going to stop him and i think uh, Turkey in, is in a prime position, um, and they're motivated to be able to, um, you know, to, to push forward and, and expand their borders a bit, but also 
um, envelop those economic interests within the areas. I mean, and, and Idlib is, is ground zero. Right. So, you know, that makes sense. Um, I think, and I know especially when uh, the initial bullback started, when he, uh, when Trump, President, well, former President Trump had announced he was no longer um, supporting the Kurds the same day, essentially, that uh, Turkey, uh, well, Erdogan essentially approved the, the intervention in northern Syria. Um, there was a, definitely a lot of blowback, but now... You don't really, as far as the channels that I, I, I research, you don't really hear that blowback anymore. The only blowbacks that you're hear, that you're hearing um, is regards to like Turkish incursions in the Eastern Mediterranean when it comes to natural gas deposits, um, yeah. e, uh, determination of like EEZs, especially in relations to Israel um, and Greece and their, you know, their new agreements with, um, with Libya. And kind of determining who has control of the natural gases, but with Syria, it seems that Turkey only really started to get involved primarily, especially against ISIS once ISIS bombed. Uh, what's took responsibility of the bombings that occurred in Turkey? Um, but prior to that, we do know that, uh, especially when ISIS needed to utilize black market uh, access, especially for their natural gas and and oil reserves and resources that they seized in Syria, you didn't really hear much from, from Erdogan stopping, you know, those supply chains essentially, yeah. until um, you know he he seized on the the opportunity, I guess, as you talked about, where Erdogan is very calculative. He knows when to when to be quiet, when to strike, when to then I guess then intervene. Uh, in, in Syria. So now we have this problem where technically the interests of the United States and a very, very important NATO ally, now Turkey has the second largest armed forces within NATO behind the United States. Our interests are not aligned. Um, and, but I mean, to, to take that into consideration, historically speaking, Turkish foreign policy, especially before Ataturk, wasn't pro-West, it was, you know, pro-Ottoman, and there's some people who, they look at Erdogan, who's trying to become this new neo-Ottoman, Sultan-esque configuration of a leader who's prim who prior whose priorities are in the old Ottoman space, and that includes, you know, Syria. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, like, that right there is, is an interesting point, because it's, there's an interesting and kind of uh, terrifying cor correlation between um, those internal and nationalistic motivations for Erdogan and also Putin, mm -hmm. as far as like you know they're they're not they're not all that different in terms of that they're trying to make to bring back an old power or at least a feeling of, of having an old power and being one of the main the main uh, participants at, at the at the you know the high table of mm -hmm. of, for, of, uh, of of international politics and. Um, it's interesting too because I think Erdogan took advantage of uh, of American fatigue of these these of our involvement in the Middle East for such a long time that the previous administration and I understand why they didn't they they there was really no political interest and in, in, in kind of and pushing back or they, they just wanted to you know wipe their hands of it and just kind of move on mm -hmm. and really not and really not make it a centralized a central uh, issue. Um, and I think that's why. I mean, I mean, if I, I don't know if you you know this, but from what I remember, didn't didn't Erdogan and former President Trump have 
a conversation over the phone and within a day or two, that's when yes. um, that happened. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I think, I think that in, in itself just shows that the political interests were not aligned for the U S to really stand up to our NATO ally and defend our, our, our I would argue our equally important, equally as important ally, the Kurds mm-hmm. and just being like, you know what, you know, yeah, do your thing. It's not, it's not our issue because I mean, we've been, I mean, this is just Syria we're talking about, but we, we have this fatigue that's been lingering for two decades and from Iraq and and Afghanistan that like when Syria kind of blew up um, and we, you know, either kept making kind of the same mistakes twice or um, really were looking too too much in the short term and not looking at the long term effects of, of, you know, us uh, repeating the same mistakes over and over again that, mm-hmm. um yeah, I think I think Erdogan, like you perfectly said, was was very calculating. I think took full advantage of that, right. and, and and you know, and here we are, mm. um, here we are right now. And and you know, now that we have, I think a very you know, an old school. Uh, I you know, I like to call the new president uh, throwback president. He he reminds me of like a liberal Eisenhower in the way yeah. that like he just has that you know that, that that mentality and that the way that he speaks, but also his relationships that he's built. You know, from being thirty years as a senator, but also as you know, being a you know vice president. Uh, for eight years and, and developing those relationships. So it's those relationships and the way that I think, um, you know, every president kind of wants to, at least the recent presidents want to be the one to, to end these forever wars. And I wonder if he's going to be the one to do it. And if he has, you know, the capability, but also just the, the, the wherewithal and, and um, the patience to be able to pull this off. So, right. um, and I think one of those, and, one, and, and I mean, in a number of areas, one of those areas where I think he can, he can kind of strike, um, at least politically, in a way that can you know make everybody pay attention, is is really calling out our NATO ally because right. um, the fact that you know it's been brushed under the rug, um, not only within the media but also from you know from our our, our our state and national security officials and all the way up to the White House, I think that's something that um, has been pr- very problematic, and I think we we have a we have a serious opportunity here to really kind of rectify that mistake and then mm-hmm. and, and say and, and and at the end of the day also salvage a relationship with the um, the Kurdish people that um, I think at some point is going to be too far gone and it's going to take decades to get back if ever. And I, I mean, and, and even more nefarious for me is uh, I've, you know, had, I've been reading a lot of things too, especially the fact that, you know, the PKK is, you know, the Erdogan has labeled them as a terrorist organization and they've done some things that might warrant that. Um, and, and same with our, you know, U.S. Uh, intelligence apparatus as well, that we've labeled them that. But I think, there's also a, you know, there's an avenue of radicalization that could happen um, amongst the Kurds. And I think the frustration and anger is already there and it's already building. Um, the fact that, like, we don't need another another uh, angry, um, you know, minority ethnic group that's uh, that's angry at us in, in the region. And I think it would be foolish not to address that immediately and not have that be a high priority right. um, to really bring them into the fold. And then also discuss, because we, I mean, and one thing I'll give credit for the, for the previous administration is, is, you know, this, this really reestablishing of our relationship with this, with Israel and, you know, having them with the Abraham Accords, which I think were, were overall uh, a pretty good, pretty good move besides the fact that they completely left the Palestinians out of the conversation. Mm-hmm. But um, I think with that dynamic and it, this is an opportunity to really push um, our influence and really regain our sphere of influence in the region that, you know, that, is I don't know that's kind of been stalled for <laughs> for a long duration of these wars and then also this 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 civil war in Syria. So. Right. No, no. Everything that you said, I completely agree. And then you know, for the say that you brought up Israel, um, mm-hmm. we can then start looking at 
the, the position of Israel in the situation with Syria. And like I said, like we said earlier in the beginning of the show, you know, this isn't the first rodeo between Syria and Israel. Um, whether that's on, that was under Hafez al-Assad um, mm-hmm. during the second Lebanese civil war, primarily between the Maronite Christians um, and the, the Sunni and Shia uh, Muslims that were supported um, by uh, the, the Syrian Baths um, and to an extent uh, very limited way by the Soviet Union um, and to an even smaller extent Saddam but Saddam did it for personal reasons rather than full Baathist reasons but Syria um, it wasn't until about 2006 when Syria vastly influenced Lebanon uh, in the 2006 Cedar Revolution where um, I think it was after the assassination of Prime Minister Hariri, uh, where it was basically kind of confirmed that, yeah, Syria was sort of behind it. Um, but Israel, going back to their invasions of Lebanon um, during the Lebanese Civil War against the, the PLO um, that was also supported by the Syrians, um, they really had their conf- they had their height of their confrontations with Syria, but now it's a completely different confrontation with Syria, where it's more so against Iran than actual you know, Bashar al-Assad. Um, but we've known since once Iran became um, an Islamic Republic in 1979 and 1980s, you know they did coordinate with the al-Assad family, especially when it came to acquiring of ballistic missiles. Um, I know during the the Iran-Iraq war from 1980-1988, but primarily the war of the cities, where essentially there was just back and forth ballistic missile bombardments of Iraqi and Iranian cities for psychological warfare purposes. Um, for, the, for at least the first four, it was the first four years of that war, uh, that's when that, you know, that intricate relationship between Syria and Iran was first established, but now Israel, it's kind of similar to what uh, Biden just recently did as far as targeting pro-Iranian militias. What, if any, and where, I guess, does Syria gain any type, not Syria, does Israel gain any type of strategic uh, successes or positions from their tactical operations regarding, you know, strategic or um, specific bombardments of pro-Iranian militia infrastructures, whether that's for the IRGC, whether that's for actual pro-Iranian militias that were essentially hired to protect Bashar al-Assad. What does does Israel gain from the continual destabilization of Syria, essentially? Um, Well, I mean, their primary interest is is reigning in this uh, proxy warfare dynamic from the Iranians that they're using their proxies in Hezbollah and you know their relationships with other jihadist groups around the region to um, you know advance their own interests and also uh, shake up the game in terms of pitting um, all the other players against each other. And honestly, I mean, just like a lot of the, some some of the other Arab states, the Iranian you know uh, at the end of the day wants to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. So like. For them, their interest, um, and actually, uh, I think their interest, and in, there is actually no interest in, in, in destabilizing, further further aiding in the destabilization of the region, because that only empowers 
the, the sort of uh, chaos that's being created by the proxy dynamics coming from Iran mm-hmm. and then coming from, um, you know, from the, 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 the Western um, and Gulf state relationship, but also from the relationship with the Russia and, um, and, and Bashir al-Assad. So like, it's a, I'm, I'm curious to see, I'm, cu- I'm curious, what do you, what do you think, mm-hmm. um, um, could be done from an from an intelligence side because I mean we work very closely you know obviously with Mossad mm-hmm. and with the Jordanian intelligence services what can be done on that front to really not only combat and push back the the threat the ongoing threat and and and, and try to outmaneuver um, these Iranian proxies and, and Hezbollah in the region but also do it in a way that doesn't forget a you know doesn't create a blind spot um, with the the ever increasing Russian uh, right. interest in the region. Um, as well as Bashir al-Assad, who at the end of the day, he just wants to stay in power and retain control over his country. Yep. Um, and he'll accept any help, doesn't yep. matter who it is, to right. do that. Um, you know, and I, I'm just curious to see what you think from an intelligence side um, that we could do, either do differently or mm-hmm. just um, you know, um, that, that the Israelis can do differently to you know, maximize the relationship with us, but also maximize the relation, their kind of newfound relationships um, with these treaty, this Abraham Accord treaties, with some of the other uh, Arab countries that are uh, rec- finally, after all these time, recognizing them as a state, but also um, seeking to uh, create and build relationships. Because I know those those relations are very purely economic and right. at, at, at its base, but I think there's an avenue that um, Israel needs to to uh, jump on to be able right. to, to be able to address and push back this ongoing Iranian threat. So I just was curious what your thought is. Um, so. As from the, I would say from a Jordanian point of view, the number one thing that they could probably utilize from a, a national intelligence perspective is the. Um, I know during the height of the ISIS um, kind of insurgency, the, Jordan received tremendous you know mass migration, uh, whether that was from Syria or um, from other particular countries or Iraq, um, primarily. Uh, from a national intelligence, if you're looking at it from a human perspective, you could always utilize some of those um, individuals who are willing to participate in you know, human intelligence gatherings to let us know, like, okay, well, we do know for a fact that Iran utilizes particular strategic points, uh, whether that's in Iraq and Syria to get to Lebanon. Um, well, what are these ports? What are these areas? What are these villages, primarily Shia villages that they utilize um, or even the Iraqi, we know that Iran essentially has heavy influences in the Iraqi Ministry of the Interior, um, especially with their trying to establish a new military. So from a national intelligence perspective, the two main areas that Israel, the United States, and these other Arab countries that signed on to the Abraham Accords, they can utilize are both human and SIGINT. Um, a lot of the times, these Iranian proxies, um, whether that's through transmitter manipulations, the listening to to calls or the track signals, I think that's much more um, imperative and strategically sound than constantly utilizing, you know, aerial precision uh, precision strikes. Um, we know that a lot of these non-state actors. They use they they like to use Israeli airstrikes for their propaganda videos, um, especially Hezbollah, who has a record of utilizing heavy civilian populations for hideouts to launch their attacks to then provoke Israel to attack those same apartment buildings. 
prisons, hospitals, schools, playgrounds. So then the aftermath, all you see is dead women and children. And so Hezbollah could say, hey, look, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to commit a genocide, essentially. Um, that's why, I mean, a little off track, the same thing I say for the United States when we're trying to tackle potential domestic terrorism. The answer is not necessarily an increased militarization of police, deployment of National Guard. It's investing in an increase in national intelligence capabilities, being able to utilize whether that's OSINT, HUMINT, SIGINT, um, and if need be, depending on severe cases, GEOINT, um, to determine projections or implications of incoming terrorist activity rather than militarizing markets, you know, stadiums or the capital, because this is what terrorists want you to do. They want you to be hyper-militarized and isolated rather than prepared and cautious. If you're prepared and cautious, you're very flexible in your approaches. But if you're heavily militarized and isolated, the only way that you're going to continue similar to what Israel does is just you're going to utilize that military. Um, so from a, a national, from a military or a national intelligence perspective, Israel, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, uh, and maybe a few other countries that may sign on to the Abraham Accord to recognize Israel as an actual legitimate state for not just economic, but maybe even long-term political purposes to get closer to the, to the United States. Their main priority to, co to combat Iran is a combination of you know, continual strategic airstrikes in areas where collateral damage is very minimal or to nuns, or increasing intelligence gathering capabilities to where you can determine, okay, we know, for example, Soleimani was in this city, this city, this city. Okay, well, why is he there? Who is he meeting? What's the strategic objectives for these, for these cities, for these villages? What does this pertain to as far as the civil war in Syria or the insurgencies in Iraq? How is Iran moving uranium equipment or military weaponry systems from Iran through Iraq to Syria or even to Yemen? How can we utilize that information to then determine, okay, well, we need to allocate these certain amount of resources for this amount of manpower to put in this strategic choke point to choke off the Iranian supply lines. I haven't heard anything about choking off Iranian supply chains from Iraq. Well, you can bomb all day you want in Syria, but if those communications and supply lines are still strong, if they're still connected through Iraq, from Iran, you're just going to be stuck at square one. You're not cutting it off at the source because in order to get to Syria, you have to get through Iraq. And in order to get through Iraq, you need to have certain key areas or even certain government bureaucracies under your thumb so that you can then mobilize and utilize Syria as a projection point against against Israel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, that's that, I think it's a that's, that's a perfect way to put it. Just because I, I mean, we're already seeing it. I think there is a rapidly evolving change to the way that warfare and conflict is done in the twenty first century, and the overuse of military strikes or even the military apparatus. Even though we have, we will probably for a very long time have the strongest military that the world's ever seen, absolutely. 
But I think it's also the overuse of those military precision strikes is a bit of a short-sighted and instant gratification and sort of short-term win. When I think where we should we along alongside our other allies in the region really need to be taking a play taking a page out of the playbook of the Iranians, some of the jihadists in the world and the way that they utilize cyber mm-hmm. warfare and also the way that they utilize open source, like you were saying, and as well as social media utilization and the way that I mean that that is how they are winning the messaging war um, in terms of spreading uh, misinformation, disinformation, but also um, you know if you if you know if you want to. If you want to uh, uh, make people believe a lie to be truth, you just got to, you know, you just got to show just a little bit, just a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, a little bit of the truth to be able to get everyone to see it as the way that you want to perceive it. So, like, you know, with with ISIS, they were they were incredibly effective mm-hmm. in their recruitment in the region um, by utilizing. Op- they have they had some incredible open source uh, researchers and analysts that they set up a whole infrastructure that was able to. Like you were just saying, utilize these military, these precision strikes by U.S. coalition forces, but also Israel to be able to galvanize support and then propel their messaging. And also, I mean, we've already said, and from and that's that's from a non-state actor, from a state actor, Iran is just as effective in using and using their own capabilities within their own intelligence services, but also through their proxies. Mm-hmm. And I think that is where we have to meet meet the challenge in that region and in the Middle East to really have a new and comprehensive and modern strategy in the Middle East from, from you know, to be able to address uh, our interests in the Syrian civil war, but also to be able to, you know, strategically place ourselves as a trusted uh, uh, player in the region as well, because I mean, that, I, I don't think we've had that mantle for a pretty long time at this point. And I think, I think cyber might be the way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and if we can, and if we can, you know, get up to par with those non-state and state actors that are our adversaries, but also, also, uh, you know, one of our, our, with regards to one of our old, old rivals with the, with the Russians as well, they're, they're quite effective um, within, you know, with their intelligence services that have boots on the ground that are also spreading that message because all for them coming into Syria and providing military support, but also going into communities and really, you know, pushing a message that, you know, the, these, uh, the, the separatist movements that, you know, they're, they're all, they're, they're, they're infused and flooded with jihadist movements and they're not going to, you know, they're, they're not going to help you and they're not going to help this country grow anything like that. They're doing it quite effectively. And mm-hmm. I think we have just not come up to speed in terms of, of, of really uh, combating that message, but really showing that the Russians are not, you know, they're not there uh, for what they say they're there for, right. you know? And I think, um, yeah, so I think, and, 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 once we do that, and once we, you know, and, and from what I understand, too, the new administration has, you know, really sought to build a new, a really big infrastructure from uh, when in terms to the cyber field. And I'm, I wonder, um, once you know these, and I, I, I would assume it's probably going to happen sooner rather than later. Once these, this, you know, this, this authorization of use of force and um, these getting bypassing Congress is kind of put, you know, is, is dealt with with this new legislation, which I, I assume is going to be passed. It looks like it's got pretty broad support and Biden supports it himself. That that'll be a way to essentially pivot away from this old and old school mentality that we've been doing since the post the beginning of the post 9-11 era where we're that we can actually uh, think about develop, developing long term uh, cyber and digital strategies to be able to push back 
um, against the interests of our adversaries in the region. And, and then also, I mean, at, at the core of this, this also just helped the Syrian people, mm-hmm. you know, and, and help these people that are caught in a crossfire from all, from literally all directions, <laughs> all, all directions. And then, and then on top of that, there's, you know, there's a, there's a massive, you know, refugee crisis that's, you know, that, that the, the Turks are dealing with, the Jordanians are dealing with, the Israelis are dealing with the, the uh, parts of Iraq. Like it's, it's just across the board where, you know, when you have people that, you know, are, are flooded for years and years and years with just desperation and things like that. That's not going to help anyone in terms of also what we talked about earlier with the, with radicalization, because you got, you know, any of these jihadist groups, especially ISIS now, if, if they, if, you know, I'm really concerned of them coming back right. just because if they can go out there and they can, you know, reestablish their infrastructure and then come back with a stronger, even stronger message than they had before, recruitment's not going to be that difficult just right. because they can come there and be like, you know, we can provide, uh, a sense of community and culture that's going to push back on these people that have you know, on these on these countries that, are, that have essentially ruined your life, your lives, and that's what we have to offer. Right. So I think now is the time to, for us at least, and with our partners in, in the Gulf states and also Israel, to really um, develop a comprehensive, long-term plan and uh, from an intelligence uh, intelligence standpoint, and also just a a policy standpoint. Um, that we can be able to move, uh, propel that forward to be able to push back on these, uh, on these, this, this messaging from our adversaries in the region. Um, and that includes, um, going back to the Kurd conversation, is that um, really deciding what we're going to do with our relationship with the Kurds. Do we want to salvage that relationship? I mean, that's, that's a serious discussion we have to have with ourselves and with our, 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 our partners um, in the region to be like, you know, they've been there for us. Are we going to be there for them? Is it even in our interest to be there for them at this point? Or is it already too far gone? Right. Um, because, I mean, that, you know, the Kurdish population in, 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 in that area is the largest nationless ethnic population in the world. And that, right. that's just not going to go away. Those are millions of people that are, are without a home. Right. And, they, and, and, and they're marginalized and oppressed in a way that, you know, people in, in, in you know, people like you and me are in the West are really never going to understand that just because like living it every single day. So I'm curious to see like, that's another opportunity where if we can, you know, actually come and develop a modern strategy and policy for addressing that diet, that dynamic and that relationship too. um, I think that can, you know, address the greater conflict in Syria, but also in the Middle East and within, you know, if when we close out our, our, our involvement in Afghanistan and, and, and Iraq. So, no, I, I, I definitely I, I definitely agree with that, um, with those statements, especially when we're talking about um, the Kurds, but also, you know, the, the role of radicalization. Um, I think, in my personal opinion, the destruction of Syria internally now is more suitable for the growth of radicalization than prior um, I mean, Syria is super fractured, whether it's just Idlib standing alone from remnants of rebels to the areas that's still under Bashar al-Assad. But then even in those areas, you still have pro-Iranian militias that are more loyal to Tehran than Damascus. And then you have the Turkish problem in the north. Um, the Kurds still trying to figure out, well, who is really our ally, who is really not our ally. Can we, as you said, trust the United States if they try to do a rapprochement? Um, you know, Russia, um, they did indicate that part of their claim to glory in this whole thing is when they quote unquote saved, um, oh God, what is it called? Um, 
think it was no, I'm blanking on it's a particular uh, it's a Syrian city that I'm blanking on, but essentially it's predominantly has been historically Christian, primarily Orthodox Christian. Um, but they were able to come in essentially, I think it was Syracuse, um, and preserved the the Roman architecture and the um, infrastructure, especially for churches and um, things that are much that are very important to the Christian identity. And once they were able to essentially have success, and, and then they then they moved into kind of solidifying their position in Syria. But, I mean, Russian presence in Syria is not anything relatively new. Um, they had Tartus um, naval facility. I think that was their first one since their first uh, agreements with Hafez al-Assad starting in the 1970s. And then recently they expanded to Latakia and then they expanded their their airfield uh, bases and uh, naval capabilities, not just for Syria, but it's for the overall Eastern Mediterranean region. Um, but then also when Russia entered the, the, the conflict, Iran gave them airspace access um, to then util for uh, utilization of their strategic bombers um, to go from Iran to Syria. Um, so it's, I think it'll be interesting um, to really delve into then the position of Russia, what does Russia has to gain? Um, but then that also goes into the relationship between Iran and Russia. Yeah. Um, that and then the the I guess the limited strategic relationship between Turkey, Iran, and Russia, because um, I know they had a a trilateral diplomatic summit. Um, once they kind of declared victory against ISIS, they all met up and kind of talked about, well, this is how we are going to rebuild Syria. Well, what does, what does that even mean um, as far as the quote unquote, the rebuilding of Syria and who would participate in that endeavor? Um, would Israel be brought in, in to an extent? Because I do recall um, there's a particular time where ISIS, um, so they sought to target Israeli personnel, um, and Syria uh, was giving warnings to Israel, and Russia told Syria, if you attack Syria, if you attack Israel, we're going to defend Israel rather than rather than you, essentially Bashar al-Assad, and that makes sense. It's about almost two million Russian Jews that live. You know, in, in Israel, and in, in the uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church um, owns a lot of real estate uh, in in Israel. And seeing how Putin is wanting to tie in the Orthodox Church with the Kremlin um, is very interesting to see how Russia's strategic uh, operations has always been, especially in Syria, not just protection of Bazar al-Assad for the purposes of the the military installations. But it was also for the preserving of Orthodox Church heritage sites or pilgrimage sites, or so it's like meeting ISIS's religious um, kind of like raison d'être for kind of like it's matching it 50-50. So, okay, where well, you're there for Islamic reasons that you want to have this eschatological, this end of days, you know, establishment of a global caliphate. Well, we can match you with that same fervor. 
but for the Orthodox Christian reasons, um, but also for strategic gains. We get to expand our Air Force bases. We get to expand our naval presence. We get to kind of demonstrate to the world we're back onto the, the, the global stage when it comes to Middle Eastern stability. Russia is the only one of the only countries other than China to an extent that can communicate and cooperate with both Saudi Arabia and Iran and Syria and Israel all at the same time. Even when in 2018, Russia took the side of Hezbollah against Israeli airstrikes, but they also were they also came out in support of the Hamas and Hezbollah unity. Um I guess like declaration, but yet that didn't that didn't diminish the position of Russia at all. You would think that oh, if Russia, if the Kremlin came out in favor of Hezbollah, Hamas, well, what does that mean for Russia and Israeli um, relationships or partnerships? They didn't hardly do anything. So I think those types of dynamics also needs to be taken into consideration because Syria is literally the location where all of these interests. Whether they're aligned or not, they're kind of colliding with each other. And it's important to know that even though, like, non-state actors, they still have their interests. Civilians still have their interests. Sovereign state actors, they still have their interests. And the continuation of conflicts, kind of, it takes all of those interests on a singular spectrum. But sometimes those, those uh, interests never align. When they don't align, that's when conflict continues. So, you know, Turkey and the United States, although they're technically on the same side as far as NATO, their interests don't align. Turkey and Iran, even though their interests do align with preserving Bashar al-Assad to a degree, their reasons to do it do not align. And Iran and Turkey, one is Sunni and one is Shia, they have their own reasons of getting involved in Syria for that. And those reasons go back thousands of years. Um... <laughs> The Russians, they're in there. Russia and Turkey, they have a similar interest to stabilize Syria, but for two different reasons. Russia is there for military security reasons. Turkey seemingly is there for economic, political, and security reasons. Uh, Russia and Iran, their interests are kind of aligned for preserving Bashar al-Assad, but for two different reasons. Iran needs Bashar al-Assad to get to Israel. Russia doesn't. Uh, Russia would protect Israel if Iran sought to destroy it. So that's an area of contention. Russia, Turkey, and Iran are on the same page for wanting to preserve Syria, but for a multitude of different reasons. The United States has a different reason from Iran, hence the airstrikes. We don't want Iran and Iraq, let alone Syria or Lebanon, to get close to Israel. We obviously don't want Russia to return to the region, and we don't want Turkey to get into the region because if they get into the region they feel like okay well then i have a pass to do whatever i want in the eastern mediterranean which they already do because we didn't really call them out in syria but these we also have to take into consideration what these non-state actors want okay. you know isis wants to come back and they want syria first they want iraq then they want their global caliphate you have the pro-Turkish militias, you have the pro-Syrian militias, you have the pro-American militias, you have Russian proxies and private military contracting companies like the Wagner Group, you have, um, you have anti-American militias, anti-Russian, anti-Turkish, anti-Assad, 
anti-Iranian, anti-Israel. Like you have all of these different compounding like interest groups that until unfortunately you'll see Darwin's uh, theory of evolution come to play, unfortunately, that survival of the fittest in regards to interests. If your interests are no longer compatible to the strategic, uh, you know, environment, you will, you, you as a group or your interests will die out. Those with the strongest interests and able to be flexible with the strategic environment will pivot and continue on. Like we're seeing with Turkey's proxies in Idlib, uh, which last time I checked, their numbers are nearing like 50,000. And that's kind of alarming. Um, but you're also, as you talked about earlier, um, these these Kurdish camps for ISIS fighters, a lot of these ISIS uh, personnel, they're able to escape. Well, they're able to escape. They're able to essentially utilize those connections they already made in these prisons and kind of either help them escape or utilize their stories to already disenfranchise populace in Syria or Iraq or wherever they came from and use that for recruitment towards radicalization and building a network yeah exactly you know and with social media it takes less than six months for radicalization like it's 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 nothing for radicalization um but you know we've been we've been talking for 53 minutes so i think what we're going to do is that we'll we'll cut it here and then next time we'll really talk about the the dynamic of of russia and really get into Iran. I think the Iran is the major power player in this. Um, this conflict will continue for as long as Iran wants their, their Shia land bridge to the Mediterranean, um, which is something they've stated since 1979. Um, and then kind of also look at, uh, we have to look at Israel again and how the Israeli-Iranian proxy is prolonging not even just prolonging the war in syria but it's like it's bleeding into lebanon and then, then it's bleeding into palestine um so that's definitely that'll make good for another episode so yeah sounds um, good to me you know i thank you for your time um, yeah great, great conversation yeah. great yes i definitely need a drink of water <laughs> You beat me to it. You beat me to it. Um, and, you know, until next time, I'll definitely bring you back on. Sounds good. Appreciate it. Thanks for your time. No, thank you. Me. Have a great one.